Well, again, uh, take out your Bibles. Let's turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we will be reading from verse 31 to verse 59. John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever it is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word, for the truths which are in it, as Jesus more fully reveals himself. We pray, O God, that we may understand these truths, that we may apply them, that we may give glory to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, the answer to that question is found in our text today. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. To abide in the word of Jesus is to abide in the word of God, to obey, to submit, to delight in, to live out God's word. And the Christian life is not merely a religion of believing certain propositional truths, but also living those propositional truths out. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, applies to every bit of your life, and that truth sets you free. Now the alternative to that, the alternative to the freedom which is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is slavery. This is the very issue which the Jews that Jesus was speaking to was keying in on. The idea that a person is a slave in this world was appalling. It's appalling even to our people in our own society. After all, is is, is not freedom enshrined in our Declaration of Independence? That well-known three-part phrase which encapsulates human flourishing, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be truly free? To many in our society, it is to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. They think that's freedom. And so we have people in our day who self-identify as all sorts of strange things and engage in all sorts of strange behaviors. And many think that to live in sin is to live freely, doing as they please as autonomous beings. But the scriptures paint a very different picture of reality. Human beings living in sin are actually not free. They are actually slaves. Slaves to sin. They are not free. They are in bondage. They are unable to escape. They're not flourishing. They are dying. Now where we left off last time, you may remember that there had been much debate as to the identity of Jesus. Many had rejected Jesus, but there were some who the text tells us believed. And so here in our opening clause in verse 31 of this new section, uh, there's this, this uh, very, what seems to be an innocuous statement which Jesus makes, which, which, but which becomes very offensive. And then we quickly learn that the many who believe in the preceding verses turn out to be those who are in fact slaves to sin. 
In other words, although it may be that there were some who truly believed and thus were truly transformed, there were others whose belief, it turns out, is spurious. They believed, perhaps they believed intellectually, but who were nonetheless still slaves to sin, dead in their sins, indifferent to the teachings of Jesus, children of the devil, and liars. Many of those will be guilty of mob tactics and their attempt to murder the one that they claim to believe in. Like we have seen before, and even as we understand human nature, there, what is revealed here is something of the fickleness of people's so-called belief. Now, earlier in John, we might recall some of those who believed in Jesus, their belief was rooted in their apprehension of his miracles. In other words, they saw the signs that he performed and they liked what Jesus had to offer, right? They liked having their bellies filled with bread and fish. They liked liked that Jesus performed signs for them. What they didn't like were the things that Jesus said, They weren't interested in the significance of the bread and what it was pointing to, pointing to Jesus being the divine promised Son of God, the bread of life. Jesus wasn't the Messiah that they were looking for. They wanted a Messiah on their own terms. They didn't want the Messiah of the Scriptures. They wanted a Messiah of their own making, of their own choosing. Such is the faith, the so-called faith, of many in our own day who think that Jesus came to simply bring, you know, to teach a better life, to be a good example of love, things like that. Our Savior provides here, though, a clear warning. Know Christ Jesus as He is, as He has revealed Himself to be. And understand what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so what does he say? Well, a genuine believer remains or abides in Jesus' words. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So here we are, a gathering of Christian people. We claim to know Christ. This is for us, isn't it? Right? Those who believe, who are said to believe, are you abiding in Christ's word? A, a true believer A true follower of Jesus Christ remains in his word, obeys his word, finds it more precious than anything the world has to offer, more precious than silver and gold, more precious than anything, is the words of Jesus. The true Christian will persevere in the word of the Father and the Son, such that it will be a controlling force in them, even as the forces of the world oppose that that word so directly. It is not those who claim mere intellectual assent who are believers, right? It's just not just knowing true things about, about the gospel or about the Bible or about Jesus. But those who do, who know those things and live those things out. Spiritual spiritual maturity is not so much talking about spiritual things or knowing deep doctrinal truths, but living those truths out in your daily life. That's spiritual maturity. To do otherwise 
is to be like a seed planted in shallow soil. Do the truths of the gospel, beloved congregation, take deep root in your heart? Or do you live at a surface level knowing some things, but not really abiding in the word of Christ? Something for us to consider. Now up to this point, it has been difficult to tell whether those who believed in John 8 had genuine faith. But that's gonna, that becomes more clear as we read further, as we see the actions and reactions of the people. And so the genuine disciples of Jesus abiding in His truth, doing the truth, the, the truths that they know, and they are set free by that truth. Faith, then, is authenticated to us by our obedience to the word of Christ. And such knowledge of the truth, which is known and lived out, sets a person free. As one commentator puts it, because of truth's intimate connection with Jesus, true disciples must not only hear his words, they must, all, must in some sense be united with him who is the truth. So true justifying faith is a work of God. By his word and spirit, where individuals become convinced of their sin and their inability to do anything about it themselves. All we can do is receive and rest upon Jesus Christ, pleading his blood alone for pardon of sin with a heart which desires to walk in new obedience in Christ. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now this statement, this is actually recognizable. We, we know this statement. It seems actually pretty innocuous to us. This makes sense. You know, true freedoms found in Christ. However, the implications of Jesus' words are that his hearers were slaves. This flies in the face of how they understood matters themselves. For the teachings of Judaism were that the law was what made a man free. Now John's gospel insists that the law points to Jesus, who is himself the truth, who is full of grace and truth. It is Jesus who sets one free. And so the nature of that freedom depends on the nature of the slavery which Jesus has in mind. And that's the point of the discussion which follows next. With Jesus, with Jesus offering freedom, the assumption was that these Jews were currently slaves. And they emphatically deny that. I don't know, maybe if, you've, if, you, if as you've read this, you've wondered, like, why were they so offended, right? This, again, this seems like sort of an innocuous statement Jesus makes. Well, they're offended because of the implications. Jesus is telling them they're, they're enslaved, and perhaps he's telling some of us that same thing, too. But of course, they don't, like the, they don't like to hear that. Verse 33, they answer, We are offspring of Abraham! and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Right? That's the key thing. You will become free. You see, these Jews are greatly offended that Jesus would even suggest that they needed freedom. What do you mean we need freedom? You know, as far as they were concerned, they were already free. They're not slaves. In fact, they state that, they, that as children of Abraham, they have never been enslaved. Now, you might wonder, how could they possibly say this? 
I mean, we know the Jews have been enslaved. Uh, they were slaves in Egypt, for example. What do they mean that they've never been slaves? Well, in saying this, it's unlikely that they're suggesting that the Jewish people have never been in political subjugation to anyone. Saying that, as we know, would be absurd. It would be contrary to the historic record. As one commentator put it, there's scarcely a major power whom the Jews had not been forced to serve. When you look at the ancient world, uh, they were enslaved to the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Syrians, and the Romans. All of these powers in the ancient world had held the Jews in political captivity. So it can't possibly be. I mean, what power did they not have to serve? It's true that, that at this time under the Romans, they were enjoying a certain amount of religious freedom. And yet the fact is that they were under the rule of and in service to Caesar. And so what the Jews are talking about here is not outward political freedom, but an inward spiritual freedom and privilege. This is actually what they're speaking about. This is, by the way, what they're offended with Jesus about. They were spiritually free. They thought they were spiritually free because they were descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Which is to say that they are free on account of their ethnic background. And so they say that, they, that they're not slaves. They don't need some kind of freedom. And to say, to say that they do is shocking and really offensive. They say, we're children of Abraham. How could you possibly say that we, are, that we need to become free? Uh, to them, they are not like the Romans who were enslaved to their idols. You know, we're not like these pagans worshiping idols. They're enslaved. We're not like them. Now, understand that the question they're asking Jesus has a challenging tone to it. Sort of like, how dare you make such a statement, Jesus? This begins to show already that these so-called believers were not willing to abide in Jesus' teaching. And so again, Jesus strongly asserts the truth. Look at verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus uh, makes clear the sort of slavery that he's referring to. Slavery to sin. Those who make a practice of sinning are slaves to it. This is the sort of thing in which the Apostle Paul warns about in Romans chapter 6. Let, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So the practice of sin not only proves that you're a slave to sin, but sin itself also enslaves. If you're a Christian, you are no longer a slave to sin. So why should you allow yourself to become enslaved again? This is the question. Why should you become enslaved again? Well, saying everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, Jesus is now making an important point. One which will further infuriate those he's speaking with. The ultimate bondage for a human being then is not political or economic or even physical. Slavery to moral failure is rebellion against God. This is why we can speak about those who are in prison. 
There, there may be people who are in prison for the rest of their lives being more free than people walking around with us. Why would that be? Because there are people in prison who know Jesus Christ. And they are free indeed. Amen. And there are people who are your next door neighbor who's in such bondage they can't get out of it. And these are the people we need to meet, to, to reach with the gospel. They're the ones who need freedom for they're enslaved. Continuing in a life of sin is the most heinous of slavery. The most wretched master then is not Caesar. It is selfish autonomy. It is standing in rebellion against your creator. It is being devoted to the created things and not to the worship of the one who made all things. That's slavery. The most heinous of slavery. This is why Jesus refused to be lowered to the level of the political Messiah. Jesus didn't come to rescue a nation from Roman captivity. He didn't come to make our nation great. The pursuit of social justice, though not unimportant, is peripheral if the, if the deeper issue of spiritual enslavement is never dealt with. In that sense, then, even Caesar is a slave. All of humanity who are outside the kingdom of God are slaves to sin. All those who continue to walk in darkness are in bondage to sin. And this kind of slavery has serious consequences. Look at, look at verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Those who were gathered before Jesus and speaking with him were, in a sense, in the household of God. They were enjoying the benefits of life in the covenant community. They were, as was they said, sons of Abraham. You know, in an ethnic sense, they're the sons of Abraham. But their status, spiritually speaking, was actually the slave. And this can be true for people even now. There are some who find themselves in the midst of the new covenant community. They're in the church. Perhaps they've received the sign of the covenant. They, they've been baptized, and yet they remain in active rebellion against God, and thus they're actually slaves. They're slaves who find themselves in the household of God. They're slaves to sin. But what happens to the slave? Well, Jesus says the slave does not remain in the house. Who stays in the house? The son remains. Only a true son enjoys the freedom of his status. The slave may enjoy a season of that, but the slave does not remain. You know, in, in you know, slavery, a slave may be sold, a slave may be sent off in some fashion. And so Jesus, again, is drawing a picture for us. It is the Son of God who sets you free, and if He frees you, then you are truly free. No longer in bondage, no longer a slave. So these Jews were indeed children of Abraham in a physical sense, they, but they were proving themselves to actually be slaves to sin. And, and how do we know this? Well, Jesus tells them, well, you're, you're, you're attempting to murder me. And they were doing this because Jesus' words found no place in them. They were not abiding in his words. These teachings 
of Jesus are the teachings from God the Father. Because Jesus only speaks that which he hears from the Father. And they were refusing to listen. But instead, they were doing what they had heard from their father. So spiritually speaking, then, they're not sons of Abraham at all, but rather, they're children of a different father. Now, Jesus doesn't say it outwardly yet, but he will. They're children of the devil. It seems that Jesus, that those that were in conversation with Jesus didn't didn't quite grasp what his meaning was. And, And so they strongly protest. They say, no, Abraham is our father. As if Jesus didn't understand. No, Abraham is our father. They're not just making a mere biological claim of family descent, though. They are, in effect, saying that they were ethically and morally descendants of Abraham. No, 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 no. You don't understand, Jesus. Yes, we're we're children of Abraham in the the physical sense. But no, no, we're spiritually children of Abraham, too. That's what they're trying to say. Jesus begs to differ, though. They thought that they did what Abraham did. They're just like him, they think. And so Jesus responds to this claim. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I've heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Abraham was upright and moral. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham followed the requirements, the commands, and law of God. In truth... These men in which Jesus was engaged in conversation with were unlike Abraham. They had no heart for God or his word. Abraham never sought to murder anyone, and yet this is exactly what they were doing. These whom Jesus speaks with neither knew God nor followed what God required. Their father, therefore, must be someone else. If you're going to claim Abraham as your father, then you should do what Abraham did. But you're not doing what Abraham did. Of course, his opponents don't appreciate Jesus' insistence of their conduct and invalidates their claim to being the sons of Abraham. And Jesus is, in a sense, telling them they are spiritually illegitimate children. And this leads to a further response, right? If you're you're telling... uh, If Jesus is telling them that you know, you say you're a son of Abraham, but you're not doing what Abraham did. Thus, you're, really, you are spiritually illegitimate. This is their response. They understand it. This is why they say this. We, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So here's what they're basically saying. I mean, who is this Jesus fellow anyway to speak of paternity? At least we aren't born of sexual immorality. The implication, of course, is that they're accusing Jesus of being an illegitimate son. Again, they're questioning his origin. Later, they will accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan. It may be that they think Jesus was siding with the Samaritans who believed the Jews had come come about from Satan seducing Eve and producing Cain. They are adamant that they have one father and that is God. If Jesus would not allow them to claim Abraham as their father, surely he wouldn't deny them God. The Lord had declared Israel to be his firstborn son, that he is the father of Israel. Jesus does not, de- uh, does not, does not deny 
the truth in the, of the Old Testament in this regard, but the, implica- the application to those he was speaking with. If God were their father, they would love him. Why? Because Jesus had come from God. He was sent from God. So the question is, why do they understand these things? Because there's a fatal flaw in their character. There's a fatal flaw in their character before the conversation even had begun. They can't hear the words of Jesus. They can't bear even to hear the words of Jesus. Because they are of their father, the devil. And they do the will of their father. In other words, they do not have ears to hear the gospel message. And so Jesus is now getting to the heart of the matter. These people, these men that Jesus is engaged in conversation with, cannot know the truth nor practice the truth because they can only do that which comes to them from their father, who incidentally is a murderer and a liar. This is why they can't stand the truth. Their character reflects the character of their father. Again, this has implications for people, right? The, the character of the believer ought to reflect the character of our father, right? The character of the unbeliever reflects that the character of their father. This is what Jesus is getting at. And so Jesus asks a couple of rhetorical questions. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, the first one asks simply, uh, which one of you can prove that he's guilty of sin? Right? You're, you're going to make these accusations. Can you, can you prove any, anything here? Many of them thought he was a sinner. Right? You know, you know sur- surely he's born of, uh, he's illegitimate. Sur- surely he's a Samaritan. He's a, he's a sinner. Well, can you, can, you, can you prove any of this? If the best theological minds, however much they might dislike Jesus' claims, and however much they might dispute his teachings, cannot find any convincing reason to convict him of sin, then why should they begin to question it themselves? Perhaps Jesus is telling the truth after all. Hence the second question, Why do you not believe me? Jesus asks. If the truth is seen in both what Jesus said and what God has said, then why is it they don't believe him? The answer is obvious. Only the one who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason they do not hear is that they do not belong to God. This is why they don't have ears to hear. Being now unable to make a successful theological argument against the teachings of Jesus, the Jews make an ad hominem one instead. They turn to a personal attack. They say, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan? You have a demon. They may say this because only a Jew with a demon could possibly question the paternity of a fellow Jew. Jesus, of course, denies that he has a demon. What he says and does comes from honoring his father. They dishonor him as they dishonor the father. Jesus, he says, is not seeking his own glory. Their their opinion on, on this is immaterial. The one whose approval matters is also the judge. The purpose of Jesus' coming was to bring salvation. 
And so he declares it again. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Again, the disciple of Jesus abides in his word, remains in him. And those who are in Christ will not see death. Not in the sense of physically dying, but spiritually. What he's talking about is eternal life. Life which physical death cannot snuff out. This is why as believers in Christ, we don't fear death. There's no need to fear death. Those who are in Christ will receive the eternal kingdom of God, over which death has no power. These supposed believing Jews continue to think only in physical terms. Look at verse 52. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than Abraham, our father, Abraham who died, the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Thinking strictly at a physical level, these Jews reason that Jesus was speaking about death of the body. And the reason that Abraham had heard and obeyed God, yet he had died. How could Jesus say that those who abide in his word would not die? You you understand their logic, right? If you're saying these things, well, I mean, Abraham died? How could you possibly say these things? And so they wonder, is Jesus suggesting that he's greater than Abraham? The father of the Jewish people. And the form of their question, are you greater than Abraham, greater than the prophets, of course expects a negative answer, right? You know, like, it's sort of a rhetorical question. They assume that no would have to be uh, the answer. But again, we find the irony of John's Gospel. Who exactly does Jesus make himself out to be is the question, isn't it? Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus refutes any notion that he's a self-promoter or a megalomaniac. Those who bring glory to themselves bring nothing. In the case of Jesus, it's the Father who brings him glory. The very one that they say is their God. The problem is they don't know God. They know about him, perhaps, but they don't know him relationally. They're not abiding in his word. And this is obvious, again, because they seek to murder Jesus. They're not, they, you know, they say they know God, they say they know Abraham, and yet they don't do what Abraham does, and they're seeking to murder, which is against God's law. On the other hand, Jesus does know the Father. And to say otherwise is to lie. Jesus knows the Father, Jesus keeps the word of the Father. Truth be told, Abraham, whom these Jews have been making frequent appeal as their father, would have rejoiced to have seen the day of Jesus. In some sense, Abraham did see that day. Not in fullness, not with his own eyes as it were, but God's revelation to Abraham was enough that he knew the promises of God, that the Messiah would one day come and rescue his people. Remember what we read in Genesis chapter 22. Dad, where's the lamb? The paraphrase. What does Abraham say? The Lord will provide. Abraham knew the gospel in that sense. Abraham knew that the lamb of God would come, would be provided for his people. And Abraham always believed God and did what God wanted done. This claim of verse 
56, that Abraham had prophetically seen the day that Christ would come, would overthrow all the points which the Jews had been arguing. And so instead of dealing with it directly, they instead interpret Jesus' words as if Jesus was Abraham's contemporary, which would then easily be refuted. And the irony, irony of, of, of John strikes again. They, they, they say, oh, well, you know, whoa, whoa you, you, you saw Abraham, huh? Well, I mean, you're not even 50 yet. <laughs> what do you mean you've seen Abraham, right? I mean, you can almost get the scoffing laughter, like, oh, yeah, you're so silly, Jesus. They say, you're not yet 50. And you've seen Abraham. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) You know, if Jesus simply wanted to say that he existed before Abraham, he could have said, before Abraham was, I was. He could have said that. But instead, he uses ego a me. Before Abraham was, I am. Clearly, Jesus is making a much deeper and more significant claim here. This is the reason the Jews took up stones. They understood exactly. They understood exactly now what Jesus was claiming. Was Jesus greater than Abraham? You know, they're sort of asking this question, like, huh, you think you're greater than Abraham? Of course not. Wait, what? Did Jesus interact with Abraham that he would rejoice in his day? Jesus here makes himself, takes to himself one of the most sacred divine expressions. Jesus was claiming to be the divine I am, Yahweh. The self-existent one. The one who has always been. This is what Jesus is. Because this is who Jesus is. How does he know the Father? How does he always do what the Father said? Because he is God the Son. What these so-called believers showed in their words and actions was that they're not free. They were slaves of sin. They were not the spiritual children of Abraham. They were the the spiritual children of the devil. They were not truly disciples of Jesus Christ. And they truly did not know God the Father at all. Perhaps they liked some of what Jesus had to offer. But they're not truly followers of Jesus. And they didn't have the freedom that's found only in him. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true disciple of Jesus Christ is those who abide in the word of Christ, the Son of God, trusting and resting in Him alone, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Beloved, do not think that simply knowing facts about the Lord is enough. Mere intellectual assent is not following Christ. Do not continue in sin. And thus be a slave to sin. Understand that Jesus sets the terms of the kingdom and being a disciple, abiding in him and his word. But abiding in Jesus, beloved, is not hard. In fact, Jesus says elsewhere, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's not by works. It is resting in Christ. Those who are truly disciples of Jesus 
are those who abide in Him. But this doesn't mean that we are justified by the things that we do. Don't misunderstand the point here. It's not the abiding which saves you, but rather validates and and indicates the truly transformed heart. Justification is by faith alone. But those who are truly disciples of Jesus Christ will gladly and joyfully seek to walk in obedience to Christ. You know, James talks about this, doesn't he? The Jews which Jesus was speaking with were relying on outward things. Their family background, their religious observance. They thought that these were the things that were going to help them to inherit the kingdom of God. That's not abiding in Christ's word. In writing to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul warns against this sort of thinking as well, saying in chapter 2, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Beloved, there are many deceitful and vain philosophical movements which are according to human tradition and not according to the teachings and work of Christ. Abide in Christ. There are many in our community who have fallen into these sorts of things. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, seek to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Abide in His Word. Abide in the One who is the light of the world, the One who is the bread of life, the One who is the great I Am, who was, who is, who always will be. In Christ, beloved, is found the truth And the truth sets you free. And if you're free in the Son, then, beloved, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the truths which we have been studying here in John. That it is in Christ Jesus that we have true freedom. Oh, help us, oh God, to abide in his word. Help us to delight day and night meditating on the Word. Help us to live out that Word, not just having intellectual assent, not just knowing things, but truly living it out. Thank you, O God, for uh, these reminders, these truths. We pray, praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.